Good morning to you all. It's very nice to be with you once again. I want you to know that this congregation has been in my heart since the last time I was here. I, I know you're in a pastoral shirts, and so I've been lifting you in prayer that God would direct you during those days. And it's a, a joy for me to be able to bring the word of God to you once again on this Sunday. I, I just want to take a moment and underscore the importance of that announcement that was made earlier concerning the upcoming election and Proposal 3. It was January of 1973 that the Supreme Court struck down laws in many states across the United States and legalized abortion on demand through all nine months. Michigan became a model state for many other states because of right-to-life forces throughout the state that were working to chip away at Roe uh, in many ways of trying to restrict abortion and roll that back. Every one of those gains over the last 45 years would be completely washed away like a sandcastle at the edge of the seashore when the tide is coming in if Proposal 3 is affirmed. So pastorally, I want to encourage you to not only vote against it, but I'm encouraging you to call your family and your friends who may be in other places throughout the state. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to people in the workplace. This is a critical vote, and we really don't want to lose it, because if we do, everything, all the gains, will be completely totally washed away. So we need to pray about that, and I encourage you to be aware of it so that you'd spread the word to others as well. Well, today we're going to be studying a small portion of the prophet Elijah's life. I'm going to read the text in just a moment, but I want to introduce it to you first. Elijah originated from obscurity and became one of the greatest beacons of light in a very dark time during the history of Israel. He came out of nowhere, almost like a lightning bolt. And in this sense, his life resembles, in some ways, the life of Melchizedek. You remember his story in Genesis 14. He, he just appears, comes out of nowhere. There's a season for him. Keep in mind that when Elijah begins to speak, prior to his words, there had been no prophet in northern Israel for 58 years. Total silence. However, the testimony of Scripture more than indicates that he was a man just like us. James puts it this way, chapter 5, 16 and 17, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Now, at first hearing of that, you may wonder, how is it that Elijah is like us? I mean, consider his resume for a moment. 
He lived through a famine that lasted three and a half years. He staged the religious showdown of his times by facing off with the prophets of Baal. He called down fire out of heaven. He executed the judicial sentence of his lifetime by killing 450 prophets of Baal. He brought the dead back to life. He spoke with God on the mountain, and he did not die. He was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. How is it that he was like us? Well, James says his nature was the same as ours. And it's interesting, the language that he uses here, homo eopathes is the Greek word. It's the same word that Paul and Barnabas used when they were dealing with people who wanted to worship them at Lystra. They basically said, don't, don't worship us. We're, we're like you, essentially. But the language there is the same as what James is using here to say he was like us. This term is an old compound adjective meaning, quote, the suffering the like with another. In other words, Elijah was a real guy who is a good example of godliness in ungodly times. He suffered through ungodliness the same as we do so ourselves. He encountered the same things that we do. And as I open up this message for you this morning, I think it will become clear there are a lot of things that he was dealing with in the culture and within the people of God that we are dealing with today. Remember that the Old Testament was written for our instruction. Paul put it this way to Corinth in the first letter, chapter 10. These things have happened to them as examples that they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. That is here, he is a good study in this regard because many lessons may be derived from his life. The times of his life are similar to ours and his message in large part is the same message we are called to proclaim. His name means Jehovah is God. Here is the text beginning at chapter 16, verse 29 of 1 Kings, reading through chapter 17, verse 6. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which was built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to promote the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hillel, the Bethelite, built Jericho, 
He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn son, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagab, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide it for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask at this time the blessing on the reading and the preaching of your word. Please take over my feeble lips so that your word would go forth and strike chords in the hearts of your people. Lord God, we would see Jesus this morning. And so we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading and the proclamation of the scripture this morning that we might be edified and encouraged to go forth and be the people of God that you've called us to be. Help us to teach these things diligently to our children and our grandchildren as well. And may you receive all of the glory and the praise. In Jesus Christ's name and all of God's people said, Amen. Now, as our study unfolds this morning, I want you to keep in mind three aspects. It'll be these three rubrics that I'll be developing this morning, and they fall in succession. Number one, the culture of his day. Number two, his bold message. And number three, the strength, excuse me, the source of his strength. So let's double back now, looking at number one, the culture of his day. Stated briefly, it was a sad state of affairs. Here's the background. The golden years of David, and to a lesser extent that of Solomon, had been long gone. The nation went through a horrendous civil war after Solomon's death. Jeroboam led the ten northern tribes into rebellion and established his own kingdom. It was complete with new places of worship for Yahweh at Dan and Bethel. Both were never sanctioned by God. When Ahab comes to power, 50 years have gone by since Jeroboam. Nadab followed Jeroboam, and he was known as an evildoer. Basha followed him and was known as a murderer. Elah followed him and was a drunkard. Zimri followed him and did great evil in the sight of God, and he married the king before him. He was followed by Omri, who even did worse evil, 1 Kings 16. 
However, when it came to evil, Ahab took the cake. That's no small accomplishment. 1 Kings 16, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of Israel, uh, all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's saying a lot. What a designation on his resume. How bad was Ahab? Well, consider this. He married a wicked woman. You know, when young people get married, you know, obviously there must be attraction that's there, but there are other things that we keep in mind as well. You know, the, it's perhaps uh, the personality that someone likes, or he or she, he is a, he is a good provider, or she is a good <coughs> homemaker. There might be all different kinds of aspects of how it is that we come to make the decisions that we marry. But for those of you that aren't married at this time, and you're growing up, and you're thinking about that day is on the horizon somewhere, consider this aspect that all too often isn't on the list, but it should be at the very top. How is this man, or how is this woman, going to help me become all I can be in Christ. That's one of the chief concerns of who it is that you're going to select to marry. This woman, this man, how is it they're going to encourage me to become a fully devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in the case of Ahab, he goes and marries a woman who is wicked. Her name is Jezebel. Her name means not exalted. It fits a bad girl reputation. To put it bluntly, she was a spiritual wrecking ball. When I was a young man, I grew up in the city of Pittsburgh. At times I was with my dad, we were downtown. You would see at times a city, a, 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 a building that was being demolished. It was time to bring it down. In those days, they weren't using explosives to bring a building down. They would bring in a large crane with a gigantic, heavy metal ball, and they would swing that ball on that crane. It would careen into the side of buildings, cutting right through brick, living rooms, dining rooms, bathrooms, tearing up everything in its path to bring that, that building down. This woman is a spiritual wrecking ball tearing into anything of godliness that remained in the northern part of Israel. As one commentator referred to her and her husband Ahab as the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. Her father was Ithbael of the Sidonians. Their marriage achieved a political alliance between Israel and Sidon. That's how this came about. His name, the, her father, includes the worship of Baal. It's part of his name. When you talk about, oh, I'm going to marry so-and-so. Well, what do we know about our family? That's what we know. We're a bunch of Baal worshipers to begin with. Now, keep in mind this. Sidon is approximately 100 miles from Mount Hermon. 
I've been studying this region of the ancient world for just about over a year now. And in the words of the old movie Ghostbusters, I can assure you this region is spook central for the ancient world. The level of presence for the powers of darkness in this northern neighbor of Israel is incalculable. Sexual sin and diabolical evil are like salt and pepper. When you see the one, you see the other. This is where Ahab sought his wife. This is where he goes to join himself to a woman. He deliberately married for a political alliance and to assist him in leading the people of God. Really. Ahab immediately erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal located in Samaria, and he made an Asherah pole as well, 1 Kings 16. Baal and Asherah were the god and goddess of rain and good fortune. Orgies were known to take place around these idols. It's very common. And it was the Roman Catholic Church, centuries and centuries later, tried to redeem this worship of Asherah in the spring by changing the name to Easter. The culture of Elijah looked very much like our day. Consider the following. The worship of nature. Baal lived in the grass and the trees. This is why he's known as a seasonal god. Today, Culture is more concerned about the preservation of whales than it is about the unborn. Mother Nature is a thing that controls the world, almost a deification of her. Even television programs and movies with a clear reference to God that is obvious to all that are listening, although the word God is not used and the word universe is now put in. Oh, I think... The universe is trying to tell me something. Even television programs and movies where this reference of God is present, this is what we hear. Worship of pleasure is also part of our culture. Our news media, TV, movies, music are all soaked with the quest for pleasure. Hedonism is flourishing. It's seen in food. We have an obesity and a diabetes crisis intrinsically linked to the type and quantity of food that we intake. It is seen in dress, in clothing, in tattoos, piercings that become more and more bizarre with each passing day. It is seen in the alcohol and drug abuse. Consider these stats that 20 million Americans struggle with addiction. Overdoses are now the number one cause of accidental death in the United States. And during the pandemic, over one year period of time, 100,000 people died of overdoses. Alcohol consumption now accounts for 20% of all deaths related to automobile crashes. And since the legalization of marijuana, it has now overtaken alcohol usage in the United States for recreational purposes. There is also in this quest for pleasure, the quest for materialism. It's never been higher. One internet site states, factors include the following, social media, brand consciousness, self-centeredness, 
in a desire to be socially accepted. Interesting that even the world notes the self-centeredness of the age. Indulge yourself. You've earned it. And of course, along with this is the worship of self. People openly praise themselves and are proud of themselves. In the past, when someone sp- what, we waited for someone to speak well of us, they would say, oh, you know, I'm really proud of you. That was a good score that you got on that test. Or you did well in that run that you did the other day. I was really proud the way you did that or all of the training that you went through. But today, it's the other way around. I'm really proud of myself. Look what I've done. I never thought I could do this. Listen to the media. You'll see this in game shows where, where people compete. They get at the end, I really am really proud of myself. In ages past, that would have never been said. It's because we're focused on ourselves. We want to build ourselves up. And of course, there's the worship of plenty in our culture as well. More is always better. How much is enough? Rockefeller said, just a little bit more when he was asked that question. Americans love more of everything. When you put all of these four together, the worship of nature, the worship of pleasure, the worship of self, the worship of plenty, all of these cultural aspects that are affecting today's church are in many ways the same thing that Elijah was contending with at that time. Remember the 58-year decline with Jeroboam. Decay happens slowly over time. It's the illustration of the frog in the kettle. You know that, don't you? That you, you put a frog in a, in a kettle of water, and if you turn the heat up immediately to high, the frog will jump out every time. But if you leave that frog in the kettle and you slowly, incrementally raise that heat, that frog will not move and will boil to death. It's exactly what was happening in the culture of Israel. It's exactly the culture that we live in today. That burner of wickedness is slowly being etched up every single day, and the fruits of it are matriculating through our culture We read about it, we see it in the news every day. But now we move on to the bold message. That was the culture. But what about the message of Elijah? He comes, as I said earlier, he's like a lightning bolt. He just appears. There's nothing said earlier about him. He just comes out of nowhere. 1 Kings 17, 1. As the Lord God lives, he enters this scene and speaks to Ahab and says, as the Lord God lives. Note, no mention of Baal here. There's a narrative shift. It's all about Baal. Elijah appears on the scene and he's redirecting everyone's thoughts. The language here is the Lord, that is Yahweh, that is Jehovah. This is the special name of God that was given to Moses at the burning bush. This is the God who lives. Now keep in mind the setting of the statement when he makes this. He's in Ahab's palace. It's called the Ivory House, 2 Kings chapter 22. It was located in Samaria. It was actually built by his father Omri. It was beautifully adorned. 
all the dignitaries in service to Ahab would have been present. And even evil Queen Jezebel would have been present. Can you imagine walking into this entourage and the first words out of your mouth is, Baal is nothing and Yahweh is everything. That's boldness. That's a bold message. That's a boldness that we need. And he speaks a stinging rebuke. You know, sometimes when we want to confront somebody else, we, we kind of talk around the issue. We, we kind of hope they get the nuance of what we're saying instead of being very clear and saying what needs to be said. Ahab is not nuancing his words here. He's not, he's not talking around the issue at all. It's a stinging rebuke. Ahab's fostering of false idolatry was in effect saying, Jehovah is dead. But Elijah said, no, he's alive. Hear the judgment. Here it's coming. Chapter 17, third part of that one verse. There will be no dew or rain during these seven years except by my command. Remember, Baal was only alive during the rainy season. He was a weak god, subject to the climate. This drought was the proper punishment of pagan idolatry. Hear Moses on this in a sermon, Deuteronomy chapter 11, 16 and 17. He preached, Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain on the ground. And the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord God is giving you. The drought would last for three years. In chapter 18, we find out that Ahab is searching the land for water to give his horses. The reason for that is horses would be essential to his army. And without an army, you can't maintain power. That is the bold message. Now let's look at the source of his strength. God is indeed that source. Elijah was speaking directly to the lion and the lioness of his age, Ahab and Jezebel. They would desire to kill him, probably in an excruciating way. Because God was his source of strength, he employed a simple strategy, and we must do the same. And I'm going to lay this out for you, and then I'm going to apply it in two different ways by the end of this sermon, one for this congregation as a whole, and one for every one of you as individuals. Here's what he did. He prayed, he obeyed, and he stayed. He prayed. He obeyed, and he stayed. Let's look at it. He prayed. It seemed like God was doing all the talking through Elijah. But James, in the New Testament, supplies some more detail. Note James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth 
listen carefully, for three years and six months. Notice that it says here, he prayed earnestly for three years and six months. The expression James uses in Greek here, prayed earnestly, is carried over from the Hebrew. It translates it more literally this way. With prayer he prayed, or it could also be praying he prayed. There's a redundancy to it for emphasis. He was fervent in prayer. He wouldn't let it go. He kept praying. Elijah was a preacher, a prophet, a miracle worker, but he was also a man of prayer. The famine ended in the third year. We know that from 1 Kings 18. But James says that it did not rain for three and a half years. It's interesting, too. Jesus said exactly the same thing in Luke chapter 4, verse 25. Three and a half years, whereas where we're reading, it says it's only three. What this means is, is that Elijah had been in prayer for at least six months before he even went to Ahab. He was not afraid to pray for physical calamity because a moral delinquency is a greater tragedy for the people of God. There are much worse things than physical calamity. True for Christians and true for the church. He had already been in prayer. And he wasn't afraid to pray for calamity. I did a series of sermons many years ago on the cusp of 9-11. And I had some criticism for that. I really felt that that event in this country was a trumpet blast from God. When that kind of tragedy happens, people's lives stop. I mean, all of life seems to come to an abrupt end. It's a time to examine the foundations. It's a time to look carefully at where we are and what we're doing. In the two weeks after 9-11, the churches in this country were filled to the brim. They were stuffed with people. By the third week, it was all over. And the worship service that was held to commemorate 9-11 in Washington, D.C. turned to the familiar text of Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, but conveniently deleted the key verse that says, just ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is He. That was deleted because that would be too exclusive. And there was no repentance in the land. Elijah was a man of prayer, and we must be so as well. He prayed. But secondly, he also obeyed. He obeyed. He not only prayed, but he also obeyed. 1 Kings 17, verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Now I want you to think about this. He just went in to the citadel of authority at that time in front of all of these pagans 
brought down this judgment, and God tells them, I want you to leave. It sounds simple, but simple can be hard for the people of God. He may have thought this, I just began my ministry. I just started. Why am I going to the wilderness? I need to be preaching repentance in the streets of the cities. This must not be God's word. I can't be out there waiting on ravens to bring me food. I should be walking up and down the streets proclaiming the truth of the gospel. First Kings 17, verse 3, Go away from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself at the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan, the brook of cutting. The more, that's what it means, the brook of cutting. The more we are cut away from things and people, the more we meet God in a profound way. Do you realize that? That oftentimes the very places that God directs you to, that we look at as being, I don't want to be here, are the very places that God wants to meet us. Beloved, there's something interesting here. When we talk about trials and tribulations, oftentimes God takes away people and that which is familiar. And if you think about it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because even if you have a family that loves you and you're trying to work through the challenges and, challenge, the trials and challenges of whatever trial you're in the midst of, you go to sleep at night and might have another person in the bed right beside you, your husband or your wife. But when you close your eyes, you're alone in your thoughts. It's all you have is you. It's these moments where God leads us in the seasons directed by His Spirit orchestrated by his spirit to cut us away the brook careth the cutting he removes us so that we have time to be with him our lives are cluttered it's 2022 we're married to a phone that's in our pocket we're married to computers the information age there are we've got to go come do be we got all these things going on all the time And there will be a season where God will lead us into a time period where he says, I need you at this brook. It won't be logical. I don't want to go there. This isn't what I need. This isn't God. It must be another voice. You can hear Elijah here. I, I'm supposed to be out preaching. I just brought this prophetic word. I need to be in the streets. No, you don't. Here's where I want you to go. God knew he wanted to keep him safe. He obeyed. He did what God had called him to do. Drink from the brook. There will be no rain for these years. He just simply obeyed. Samuel would later, Samuel told King Saul, Obedience is better than sacrifice. You remember that? Obedience is better than sacrifice. Doing what God's called us to do. You know, oftentimes we, we do that. You know, we think, well, you know, I'm going to throw a couple extra bucks in the offering plate today. We know we haven't been doing what we needed to be doing. 
as if we somehow we can buy him off in that way. He prayed, he obeyed, and thirdly, he stayed. True obedience is accompanied with staying power. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is located in the wilderness. Keep in mind, the wilderness is where God meets his people. It was Israel as a nation. He led them into the wilderness. In the wilderness, all they had was him. It was in the wilderness. They had to trust him for meat, for water, for bread, for sandals that didn't wear out. They had to look to him all the time. And then years later, prophets would look back on that and God would be speaking, Oh, that I had you back in the wilderness. Because God takes away distraction in the wilderness. He stayed in the wilderness. Staying put is often very hard for the people of God who often are heard saying, Get me out of here. I want out. I'm done. I've been done. Put a fork in me. I'm done. Notice how the three go together. He prayed because God keeps his word. He obeyed because God cares for his people. He stayed because God is dependable. Let me conclude it this way. We too are in difficult times. As a congregation, you're in a time period where you don't have a pastor. That's always an unsettling kind of a feeling for a church. So as a congregation, you need to pray. And you need to be obedient. And you need to stay put. Stated differently, be patient. Be patient. Pray for your leadership that they would patiently take the steps to bring the right man here. Pray, obey, and stay. But more pointedly, for every one of you as individuals, you know there are times that are uncomfortable for you. You, you know when you're up against it. It could be the discipline of a child. It could be a rough marriage. It could be a difficult financial situation that you're in. It could be bad news from the doctor. God's leading you into a period where you feel like, I'm in a wilderness. Sometimes it's a season. Some, for some people, it seems like a lifetime. The world, the flesh, and the devil are assaulting our character of our souls every single day. And church compromise with all three is all too common. It's happening everywhere around us. You see it in the Orthodox Church crumbling in many quarters of North America and also Europe. Here is the prophetic word to us. Pray. There's no answer. I'm tired. Keep praying. Obey. There must be another way. There's got to be a different direction. Be obedient. 
stay. I can't take this anymore. I want out. I want out of this marriage. I want out of being responsible for these kids. I want to be free of this disease. I'm done. There are all kinds of situations that God has led us into that we want freedom from. But we have to pray. We have to obey. We have to stay. God always meets his people in special ways in the wilderness. God said, I kept you, that is Israel, like one guards the pupil of his eye. When you're out walking and there's a low tree limb, sometimes your eyelid is shutting before you even are conscious of the fact that there's a limb there. It's that fast. And God says he guards his people as the pupil of his eye. There are all kinds of situations that God has led us into where these things are necessary. Moses looked back upon God's mercy to Israel in a sermon he preached in Deuteronomy 32. Listen to how he puts it, beginning at verse 10. Uh, He found him in a desert land and in a howling wasteland of wilderness. He circled him. He cared for him. He guarded him like the pupil of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spreads his wing and caught them and carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. God always meets us in the wilderness. He will lead us to Brook Kareth. He will cut us away from the things that distract us, And God always meets us in these impossible times. We pray, we obey, we stay put. Christ did it for us. He prayed for us in John 17. In Christ, he obeyed, he did what he was supposed to do, and he stayed on that cross. Dear church, may we all do the same, for we live in in a time of profound wickedness. May we be faithful and realize the salvation of our God who meets us at those times. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the direction it gives us, Lord. We're humbled by a man such as Elijah and the message Brief as it was, when he made these statements, the faith that had to be present, and how you guided and directed him. He prayed, he stayed, and he obeyed. Lord, we lift ourselves up to you this morning, and we pray that you would help us to remember these things. Build up our faith as we're contending with the forces of evil in this world. Build up our faith as we contend with failing bodies, difficult marriages, challenging discipline situations with children, financial distress, Lord, and all of the evil that is around us made available through the internet and through television and through cable and through movies at the theater, through music. Lord, we're surrounded. We're we're in a, a cauldron that's steeping all the time of ungodliness. And yet, Elijah was a man who was born up with faith and trusted you. We pray for ourselves this morning 
May we have the same. Give us this, and may you receive the glory and the praise and give us the joy of going along for the ride to just see your hand work in and through us. For your glory, we ask this. Amen. We're now going to be led in the song, uh, O Church, Arise.
receive this blessing. Heavenly Father, bless now this, your church. Bless them with faith to trust you, to overcome their fear. It's fear that affects everything that we talked about this morning in this message. Build them up in this week ahead with faith. Help them to remember the word of God. And may they sense your presence in a new and fresh way that would encourage them to take on the individual trials that are theirs each day. Build them up from the inside out and make your face to shine upon their comings and goings even in the wilderness. For Jesus Christ's name and his sake, amen.